Well, good morning. Good morning. Oh, good. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana and, of course, Caroline for the <laughs> wonderful violin. Don't we join with the psalmist at the very end of the Psalter who declares, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him in his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That is the natural disposition of the believer, to praise the Lord for all that he has done, but for most of all, for who he is. It fills our hearts to overwhelming. I don't know how many of you may have seen images about two weeks ago, the new James Webb Space Telescope began sending back its first pictures High-definition pictures of the very reaches of space, galaxies, stars, quasars, nebulas. They are pictures like none you could have seen. They're more magnificent than any artist could concoct. Well, I know many things in our life, many challenges can loom large. They seem insurmountable. While the struggle of faith can be real, to look at these images... To know that we serve the very one who spoke these galaxies into existence. That same word that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Faith and rest is the only possible response from a Christian's heart that would meditate on this truth. In a time where the world is increasingly hostile toward the God of the Bible... Where many feel that science and technological progress have done away with the silly notions of some god in the sky. But in almost a cosmic troll of those who would cup their eyes and their ears to the testimony of creation. It is this very technological advance like these telescope pictures that only magnify what the conscience of everyone instinctively knows. That there is a creator. Our microscopes now can see DNA or the millions of light-sensitive cells in our eyes. The more mankind tries to advance in technology to eliminate the need for God, the more the very technology reveals no other option but a creative, all-powerful, intelligent being. And sadly, it is the rejection of that general revelation like pictures of the ones we saw from the new telescope that will be exhibit A in a righteous judgment at the great white throne. Sadly for the lost, they are without excuse. The heavens declare, they scream, there is a God. And for the Christian, what comfort we take, what boldness we may have. The general revelation available to all through creation, through the testimony of space, of DNA, of creation all around us, down to the hummingbird and the giraffe, all are a beautiful backdrop, a visual confirmation of what? Of the special revelation that we have been given in Scripture, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that it's all about him. Those beautiful quasars and galaxies all for him. They were created for him. 
Infinite galaxies created out of a love from God the Father to God the Son. He has told the world about it in the creation of the heavens. And he has given us a book. He has preserved for us a book. Given that we might know him. It is our joy and our privilege this morning to gather under the authority of this very word that we might be changed by it. As we approach scripture this morning, English theologian John Stott reminds us, quote, we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Close quote. It is our duty to walk out of this place different than when we arrived. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We approach this only book this morning, the only book this morning that we do not read, but that reads us. So let us dive in with all earnestness to God's revealed word this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we began our series on a well-known story to many, of the rich young ruler. It is a cautionary telling. It is a convicting and instructive narrative preserved for us by the Holy Spirit for our growth in sanctification and as a clarion call to those who would find their reward in this life. Part one last week, we saw a unique man, one who was not only very rich at a young age, but it so distinguished himself at this young of an age so as to be a prominent ruler in religious life. Not a Pharisee or a teacher per se, but he was a power broker. He was an influencer. Quite an accomplishment for this young man. And our scene opened with an amazing sight. This man of stature and of wealth, he comes running and throwing himself down at the feet of Jesus. And he's so seemingly desperate for Jesus' insight and and, and, and wisdom that he's willing to humiliate himself in such a way. Men of wealth and stature in the Middle East do not run, and they don't throw themselves down at another's feet. Yet what happened in this exchange not only challenged this man, but reverberates down through history. This rich young ruler opens with a salutation. He opens with a title that betrays his heart. This ruler calls Jesus good teacher. Now, that would sound pretty good to most ears. There's no doubt that this man thought he was being deferential and respectful, that he was giving honor. And in fact, what what was he inquiring about? He was inquiring about eternal life. Well, that's the stuff of dreams for us, isn't it? Someone falling down desperate at your feet saying, what must I do to go to heaven? Wow, this guy must sure want the gospel. As we will see today, no, he really doesn't. He wants what the whole world wants, eternal life, eternal peace, heaven. Desiring heaven is as natural as desiring food. You were created with both in mind. Just as you were created to need food, you were created as an eternal being with eternity written on your heart. We all innately know that we will live forever. So it sure would be nice to spend it in paradise. All want it. But few will pay the price. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few will find it. 
However, before Jesus can even address the man's question, before he can even begin to pry open this man's conscience, Jesus first assaults the outer fortress of his heart and of his understanding. Jesus does not respond with joy that someone would ask him how to obtain eternal life, saying, oh, I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to go die on a cross, and if you believe in me, I'll give you eternal life. Jesus says none of that. Instead, he rebukes the rich young ruler. He corrects his understanding of the word good. Jesus responds to the man in verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now we spent the majority of part one in our series dealing with this attribute of God, the goodness of God. Goodness to us today and to this young man was a relative term, wasn't it? It's expendable. It's adaptable. It's fungible. It has degrees and layers. Good is a nebulous term today that's really definable by the user. But amazingly, we see in Jesus' response that the true attribute of goodness belongs to God alone. That it was not an abstract or a bendable or a wishy-washy concept as we use it, but is in fact an absolute attribute of God. No different than his omnipresence, no different than his sovereignty. Goodness is singular in its definition and in its practice. Jesus begins by making a correction to this man's understanding of good. And Jesus does this as his opening salvo against this man's conscience because it's fundamental to our worldview. As we said in part one, the very heart, the very genesis of a worldview, the necessary foundation of a worldview has to start with one point. It must start with one question. Are human beings fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? Are they by nature good or by nature bad? And we consider all that flows out of those two competing positions. Consider the theology, the philosophy, the laws, everything that flows out of those two competing worldviews. And today we live in a society that teaches that humans are fundamentally good. Though ironically, they can never define what good is because they have no absolute baseline to make such an assertion of what good or bad is. There's no measuring rod. The other day I saw a woman wearing a t-shirt that I thought was so interesting. I wish I could have spoken with her. The t-shirt said, be a good human. Be a good human. What do you mean by that? How do I do that? Where do I find the definition of good so I can live by your t-shirt philosophy? Of course, we know that the philosophy is pregnant with the wisdom of the world. Goodness is defined as finding your truth. Goodness is doing whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt another. To be good is simply to be a kind person or someone who doesn't break the laws. It's not hard to be considered basically a good person in today's culture. Of course, this is antithetical. This is contrary to the teachings of Jesus, indeed to the entire counsel of Scripture. So Jesus begins at this point, correcting his understanding of the word good. You cannot approach the narrow gate of salvation clothed in your own goodness. If this rich young ruler thought Jesus was good, I guarantee you he thought he was pretty good himself. In fact, look at how wealthy he was. And at such a young age, our prosperity preachers and charlatans would say that the blessing of God was surely on this man. Of course, the opposite is true. 
Jesus must correct this notion of goodness because that which you seek, eternal life, you cannot even approach the narrow gate to life by bringing along your works and your goodness. We come naked and we come destitute. It's the only way you'll fit through the gate. And Jesus begins here, only God is good. And if only God is good, guess what? We're not. That changes everything. That sets the entire trajectory of how we view and how we approach our entire world. It allows the Christian to approach God rightly, making the grace of God sing out in sweetness. Today we are going to see Jesus continue his frontal assault on this man's entire worldview. And as their conversation continues, and we're going to see Jesus demonstrate and use one of the most effective tools the Christian has in their arsenal of bringing the lost to Christ. So with that, let's look to our text this morning, Mark, 19, Mark 10, 19 through 22. Mark 10, 19 through 22. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we arise and put your authoritative word before our face this morning, we know that we will be forced to look into that mirror. We know, Lord, that our own toes are going to be stepped on. We know that our hearts are going to be challenged. We know that our minds will be racked. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply this forcefully and gently, whatever needs to be done. We are here for your business, Heavenly Father. Lord, we ask that you would attend to your word and cause the arrow to find its mark. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, over the years, I've had the privilege of knowing some really wonderful men in the Lord. And most names you would never know. Indeed, God reserves his highest rewards for those that we will never hear of. Their names are never in light. But one man that you may know that I've been blessed to call friend and have even joined in some ministry with was a man by the name of Ray Comfort. Now, some immediately know that name. Others may not. To hear his New Zealand accent is usually a dead giveaway. He ends up Living Waters Ministry in California. And he became well known when he partnered with Kirk Cameron in their video series titled Way of the Master on the topics of evangelism and reaching the lost. Now the name Way of the Master was chosen for their ministry because they aimed to model their outreach to the world in the manner in which Jesus did. They approached the gospel and witnessing in the footsteps of Jesus' example. Much like Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, they patterned a system of evangelism by which they exposed the hearer to the law of God, to the Ten Commandments. 
They would run people through what they called the good person test, asking people if they were, if they were a good person. And everyone, of course, says, yes, of course, I'm a good person. And thus they listened to last week's message at Harrison Hills, and hopefully they'd answer differently. But upon hearing their profession, they, they're asked if they are indeed a good person, they would ask the respondent if they could probe them further to see if that was true. Now, most of them, seeing no danger, most will agree. And they then proceed to walk them through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? Yes. Have you ever stolen? Yes. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Yes. And to wrap it up, of course, we're not judging them, but by their own admission, their words, they're lying, thieves, and they're blasphemers. And that's only three of the Ten Commandments. And do they still think they're a good person? And, of course, it goes from there. It's called way of the master because, as we see in our text, this was the way of the master. In fact, even calling it the good person test aligns with our scene today as Jesus had to first what? He had to realign this man's understanding of good. Again, Jesus responds to the rich young ruler up to this point. Jesus responds to the rich young ruler at this point. And as we continue... Quite honestly, it sounds callous to the listening ear, how Jesus responds. And yet we will see that Jesus' method was the most loving thing that he could have done for this man. There's many more depths to plumb, but let's dig into our text here, beginning with verse 19. Verse 19. You know the commandments. We have to pause there. If we think about it, what a very odd place to go on its face. Why isn't Jesus simply telling this man to believe in him? Why is Jesus bringing this man back to the law when he asked about eternal life? Indeed, even Paul says in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So what is the point of this exercise? Well, thankfully, if we keep reading that same Romans 3 verse 20, Paul tells us exactly why. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Saints, what is the purpose of the law? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul wrote to the Galatians, reading from the Amplified Bible, that the law has become our tutor and our disciplinarian. Some versions say our schoolmaster to guide us to Christ. Jesus is using the law for the function it was designed It is a revealer of hearts. It is a prober of conscience. It is a mirror for us to look into that shows us exactly as we are. I've often used the the analogy of the bathroom mirror when we wake up in the morning, haven't I? That's the law. It shows us exactly as we are. It doesn't show our hair in place when it's actually out of place. It tells us the truth. It gives us our true state. The purpose of the law is to expose, to lay bare. It crushes. It brings death. This is not the arena of grace. We cannot see the cross as something done for us, beloved, until we see the cross as something that is done by us. It is the law that brings that revelation. See, that doesn't sound very nice. Well, neither does the doctor who brings you news of your bad prognosis. He's not there to coddle us. He's there to bring us the truth. 
For beloved, remember the phrase in sharing your faith. Like Jesus, we give law to the proud and grace to the humble. Law to the proud and grace to the humble. Not only is this Jesus' pattern through his entire ministry, but indeed, James says in James 4, 6, that this is God the Father's disposition. Saying what? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus already knew the heart of the rich young ruler, as we will see. But we don't. We cannot read the hearts of people. I have used this method literally thousands of times in my life, and I'm continually amazed by the response. Those that you would visually assume would be unreceptive to the law, those that you thought would be hard or uninterested, are immediately broken by the law, and they weep. I have seen some of the most hardened men, some of the most scary-looking men, even in prison ministry, weep when confronted with the law. And only then may the wonderful and beauty of the gospel be applied. The good news. But beloved, good news isn't good unless we first believe there is bad news. It's been well said that we will not appreciate the cure if we do not first believe that we are sick. And most of the world does not believe they are sick. They think they're pretty awesome. And even if they aren't perfect, well, I'm certainly not as bad as that person over there or that person that I saw on the news, or that person that did this awful thing in history, I'm not as bad as them. That is the person for whom the law is intended, to do its perfect work, to show sin, to show us as we are. And so Jesus does. Back to our text, Jesus opens the law. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, beloved, I want you to notice something about this list. We know that we have Ten Commandments. What some may not know are how those Ten Commandments are split up. The first tablet, the first half of the commandments, as it were, deals with our relationship toward God. And the second tablet deals with our relationship with others. And what tablet does Jesus pull from? His relationship to God or to others? others, right? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. These are all person-to-person interactions. Now, it's not that these are lesser commands than the first tablet, not in the least. However, if we keep the first tablet, by default, we will keep the second tablet. You see that? If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, first person, first tablet, God-oriented, Are you going to murder someone, which is person-oriented? If you make for yourself no idols, no graven images, first tablet, God-oriented, are you going to steal from someone, person-oriented? Jesus replies to the Pharisees in Matthew 22, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. So in reality here today, with our rich young ruler, Jesus hasn't even brought out the big guns on him, has he? Hasn't even brought out the big guns. 
But Jesus leads with and he preaches the law. And we can say with all surety that this has been all but abandoned today in our evangelism and from our pulpits. Modern culture says that people don't want to hear that. And we must give the people what they want. No, we must give the people what they need. And we would do well to model the example of the master. It is a tragedy when the law is lost in preaching and in our vocabulary. The prince of preachers lamented and he cautioned against this loss all the way back in the 1850s. Charles Spurgeon writing, quote, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. Lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain, for it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say you have deprived the gospel of its most ablest auxiliary, meaning its most powerful weapon, when you set aside the law. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that is to bring men to Christ. They will never accept grace till they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary purpose and must not be removed from its place. Close quote. Beloved, if we count ourselves amongst the brethren, but have never trembled before the law and its impossible demands, if we have never quaked before the necessary justice that must accompany a good and just God, can we really say that we have understood the depths and the riches of mercy? Can we understand the depths of our salvation without first understanding the depths of our sin? The answer is no, we cannot. And we know that the depth of our problem determines the extent of the solution. Our problem being sin, revealed by the law. The solution? The death of God's only Son. If it took the darling of heaven to be crucified to rectify this problem, how deep exactly was the problem? And how vital now is the law to understand this? Looking back to our text, how does our rich young ruler respond to Jesus opening the law to him? How does he respond when the mirror is held up for him? Verse 20. Verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Oh, really? Oh, really? This is what it looks like to fail the way of the master good person test ancient style. Today we would say, yes, I'm a good person. Then a devout Jew would say, I have kept all these things from my youth up. First off, is that true? The psalmist tells us, Psalm 14.3, that they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. These are not new concepts Jesus is bringing here. The Psalter was read continuously in the synagogue. And yet our young ruler says, I have kept all these things from my youth up. He's deceived, and dreadfully so. If we say we have no sin, 1 John 1.18, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Beloved, the standard for the law is what? It's perfection, isn't it? James writes in his epistle, for whoever keeps the whole law, 
but fails in one point, has become accountable for it all. James 2.10. Why does James tell us that? It sure sounds mighty discouraging, doesn't it? Oh, in one spot and I'm guilty of it all? Throw up your hands. That's just the opposite, beloved. This is the golden key to walk out of the prison cell of works and legalism. James is telling us that the gig is already up. We're guilty. Now throw yourself on Christ. If we still believe that we can climb this impassable mountain of salvation by keeping the law like the man in our text, we will forever remain in our sin. Why? Because salvation is all of me at that point, not of him. We're all like criminals on the run. And we hear faint echoes of sirens of the law that are chasing us our entire lives. Our consciences condemn us. And so we run harder until finally we're trapped and we're surrounded by 10 squad cars with their lights on. We are being arrested. The gig is up. But at least now you can stop running. Most criminals who were reformed and changed their life will tell you that the best day of their life was when? The day the law arrested them. It was through being arrested that they were actually made free. And he whom the Son has set free is free indeed. But this rich young ruler keeps running. He hears the sirens of the law and he keeps running. It is good news for us, beloved, that we cannot keep the law. That to be guilty of one is to be guilty of all. There's no use running. Those ten vehicles of justice will surround us. If we surrender, if we allow ourselves to be arrested by that law, we will be made free. But if we attempt to flee again under the eternal might of the law, it will execute justice, eternal death. The law will get its man sooner or later. Don't make the law chase you. It will be rougher if they do. Submit to it. Repent to the judge and you will go free, truly free. Your debt has been paid. Your fine has been paid. Your, rep, your record has been wiped clean. You're made white as snow through the blood of Christ. When we broke the law, it was like a rock being thrown at a mirror. And it may only hit in one small spot, making one small divot, but the entire mirror spider cracks. The mirror is now worthless as a mirror. It's unable to operate as it was designed to. It's unable to attain to its uses. It must be thrown away. This rich young ruler has believed what nearly every person you will meet believes. That I am a good person. You are a good person. And together we are striving to earn eternity, whatever that means or looks like for you. Of course, none of that is true. Does this man believe he is good? He sure does. And it was this very standard of goodness that he applied to Jesus when he called him good teacher last week, wasn't it? That makes Jesus' harsh rebuke and response make a lot more sense now, doesn't it? Jesus' response to this man's self-righteousness, his delusion, his bad theology, his entire worldview that is baked around idolatry and a lie. Jesus' response coming in verse 21. 
is a model for any pastor. <laughs> Look at this, verse 21. And looking at him, Jesus loved him. Oh, help me, Lord. Now pause there. We've stumbled on a few things that we dare not miss. We see Jesus looking at him. Now this word for looking is to gaze intently and earnestly, to fix your eyes upon, to consider and to contemplate, to give complete attention to, meaning Jesus sees this man. He considers this man in his state and what flows from our Savior. Jesus loved him. Now, what does this mean? This is agapeo love. This is a, a love that's based on esteem. It's a, it's a more general type of love. This isn't a salvific love per se. It's not an effectual love bringing salvation to this man. What it is saying is that Jesus sees this man. He sees his soul. He sees his desire and how he truly believes that he has kept the law. That this rich young ruler is genuine in his pursuit. And he's come to the sheep, lost sheep of Israel. There is something commendable in that on its face. But it was all external. Everything in Judaism was all about the external act, wasn't it? Feelings and thoughts were not able to be, were not considered sinful. It was only the act. You could think, you could feel, however you want to, you're fine. It's only the act in Judaism. But God looks at the heart. And he sees it. He raises the standard, doesn't he? Hatred is what? Murder of the heart. Lust is what? Adultery of the heart. I have kept all these things from my youth. And he genuinely probably thought he had. Beloved, many will be shocked when they breathe their last breath in this life. And the next sight they see is fire. And the next smell is sulfur. What am I doing here? I was in church every Sunday. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we knew you. We did mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Say, but I wasn't lawless. I kept all these things from my youth. I lived a good and moral life. I've often referred to Matthew 7 as one of the most, that we read above there, one of the most terrifying verses in Scripture because we see what is known as the principle of the double knock. Anytime in Hebrew, in these languages, when we see a double usage of a name, like Lord, Lord, it denotes intimacy. It denotes a personal connection. Lord, Lord, twice, meaning I knew you. I loved you. I kept all your commands from my youth. Those people are confused and distraught as they stand before the great white throne. I'm a Christian. I was raised a Christian. My parents were Christians. I was baptized. I went to Sunday school. I served the homeless every Saturday afternoon. I never missed a tithe. How can you say you don't know me? I've kept all these things from my youth. The rich young ruler looked at his success in life, thought surely this was God's favor on him. Little budding, German, germinating prosperity preacher there, eh? The richer you are, the more God is pleased with you and blessing you. It's proof. That's exactly what was in his heart. There's nothing new under the sun. And here back to our text, the master physician 
looking at the very depths and recesses of this man's heart, he puts his finger right on the problem. He's been diagnosed, and the culprit has been revealed. Back to our text. Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come follow me. Give up your idols. You have a God replacement in your life, and it needs to go. It stands between me and you. Now, does this mean that if we sell everything and go out on the mission field, that we're now guaranteed a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb? It's not what that means at all. It does mean that no idolaters will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You you cannot hold Christ in one hand and the world in the other. That is going to look different for every person hearing this. If there's an idol there, the Holy Spirit is faithful to show us. Is there a God replacement in our life? Is there something doing for us what God says he wants to do for us? Are we looking to it for comfort? Are we looking to it for security? Are we looking to it for provision or escape? What in our lives are we putting in God's place? What's our substitute? What is masquerading as the Savior of our lives? Jesus puts his finger right on this man's sorest spot. Right here is where the infection is. Oh, I'll give it all up for you, Jesus. But let me just have this one thing. Just this one thing. You often hear people say, well, God knows my heart. Exactly. That's precisely the problem. Theologian B.B. Warfield, he writes, quote, There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we can never be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relationship to him or to God through him ever alter, no matter what our attainment in Christian graces or our achievement in behavior may be. It is always his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. Close quote. We do not claim any merit, beloved. Our merit is Christ. Because the heart and mind of the Christian has weighed themselves in the measure of the law. And I earnestly pray that we have found ourselves wanting. It is that want that drives us to our Savior. Coming in our true state, naked and destitute. This man, beloved, has been brought to the crossroads. He stands at the precipice. That's what the law does. When you hear it, you must do something with it. Doing nothing is not an option. Coming to church today was not free. It has a cost. We must give heed to the pricking of our conscience. Come in repentance and faith or reject it. No middle road. What does our rich young ruler do as the defining crossroads in his life is revealed? Verse 22. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. What property did this man own? Can you name it? What does it look like today, this grand property? 
I'll tell you how it looks. It is returned to sand and ash somewhere in the middle of the desert. It doesn't exist. It's gone. And he gave it all up for a pile of sand. And while we see the response of the ruler, the tragic response of our young man, what is equally instructive is what we do not see in this entire exchange. We do not see the gospel. One commentator notes that the gospel, quote, hangs quietly in the shadows here, but never makes an entrance, close quote. It is that beautiful message of hope and redemption that is hanging over this entire scene, just waiting to burst forth upon a heart that would come in repentance and faith and receive it. But away it flies. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. We do not take the precious pearls of the gospel and throw them before swine, Scripture says. We don't allow it to be trampled underfoot. Jesus never gives this man the good news of eternal life because he would not accept the bad news. Beloved, the law is in the driver's seat. It is either driving you to Christ or it is driving you toward everlasting destruction. That's the choice. Most of the world is looking for door number three. There is none. Beloved, this rich young ruler did not want the gospel. He just wanted to live forever in paradise, like the rest of the world. You may remember we began our series with the analogy of the mortgage crisis back in 2008, 2009. Right? Driven by the thronging masses that flocked to cheap mortgages. They were told that they could have this mansion because the credit was cheap. Only to find the rates reset higher and higher. The cost was higher and higher till finally they lost their homes. Everyone in the world wants that eternal mansion in the sky. Peace, serenity. Every person you want, you meet, wants that slice of heaven. But what are the costs? We know that if we ask a thousand people on the street today if they want to go to heaven, a thousand people will probably tell you yes. Just like the rich young ruler. If the rates are low enough, if the bar to entry is low enough, I'll take that mansion in the sky. But what happened when our rich young ruler approached the divine bank to inquire about the terms and conditions? He approached wanting to buy the home of his dreams, and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit this eternal home? How much will it cost me to buy this home? What are the rates? What are the terms? And the bank's reply, it's going to cost you everything. The rates infinity. The terms sell everything. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The call has not changed, beloved. The law has not changed. The good news of the gospel has not changed. Today, there are those listening who are at a crossroads, and they know by the prodding of the Holy Spirit that it is so. Will we exchange our substitute God for the risen Christ? Will we trade a heap of ash and sand for that which does not perish, where thieves cannot break in and steal and destroy? The call of Jesus to the rich young ruler is the call to us this morning. 
And what will we do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves to your word this morning. As hard as it is, as personal as it is, Lord, that mirror when we wake in the morning is not pleasant often. But God, you are good. Goodness belongs to you alone. And we are desperate to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Nothing of ourselves we bring simply to the cross we cling. Heavenly Father, we ask that this hard message would not only spur us on to evangelism, that we would truly walk in the way of the Master, but Lord, that our own hearts today would be convicted, Lord, that we would not trade beauty for ash. In Jesus' mighty name.